Today, uh, we have our final sermon in our series, which we've entitled, Risk is Right. Uh, We stole that title from a John Piper sermon and John Piper book, and basically, we've been looking at over this time the idea that God calls us to take risks for the cause of Christ, that it's right to take the right risks, Uh, that Christianity is not a safe religion, it's not one of comfort and ease, but actually... We take the first risk by putting our faith in Christ, by abandoning hope in ourselves, by by giving up on works religion and saying, my only hope is in Jesus. That's the first risk someone takes as a Christian. But then Jesus calls us to a life of risk, to make disciples of all the earth, to give our treasure away and and live uh, trusting in him. Uh, To be able to stand for truth no matter what happens and, and say like Esther did, if I perish, I perish. Risk is right. And we come to our final sermon in this series, which I've entitled Risk and Rest. Risk and Rest. And we'll see how that goes together. But let's read from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 to begin. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day... God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the reading and preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. As you enter, as you sit here now, do you feel rested? Out of 10, you know, 10 being ultimate soul tranquility, one being I probably should be at hospital instead. (laughs) Do you feel rested? It's an enticing word, you know, if I could promise you rest today, I think you'd be like, please, I'm all in. There's a resurgence of rest, thinking about rest, talking about rest, uh, writing about rest at the moment. There's podcasts and books and business gurus, Christian and non-Christian, all talking about the idea of rest, all extolling the practice of being restful doing less, and even there's a resurgence in the idea of a Sabbath, you know, the fourth commandment, that you should Sabbath. A non-Christian writer, Alex Sujong Kim Pang, says, oh, he wrote a book called Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. That sounds good. (laughs) Work less, get more done, get paid the same. I like it. And so popular was his book that he wrote up a follow-up book, Shorter. (laughs) How working less will revolutionize the way your company gets things done. So rest and shorter. Oh, (laughs) I'm I'm in. I'm naturally lazy, and so that sounds good to me. Uh, I I like the idea of, like, reducing my number of hours and still being as efficient, hopefully. Uh, That's in the business world, the self-help world. Um, It's also becoming really popular in the Christian world, too. There's a renewed emphasis, a renewed... uh, 
interest in spirituality and the spiritual disciplines, and in particular one church in the U.S. and one author who was a pastor, a guy called John Mark Comer, he recently released a book which I read and was very helpful, but it, it speaks to our feeling right now. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And the subtitle, How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World. Does it speak to the kind of feeling that perhaps you bring this morning? <laughs> Chaos. <laughs> that was our morning in the spring house. It was far from Sabbath rest. It was chaos. There was, yeah, I was chaotic because I just spent so long trying to work on this sermon, but I just couldn't get it done. I couldn't figure out exactly what I wanted to say. Maddie wasn't feeling well. The kids were yelling and screaming. I was rushing out the door. I couldn't take the kids with me. There were tears. I was nearly leaving things behind. I was late to get to church. Chaos. <laughs> Give me that book. I need to read it again. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. My heart sings yes and amen to that. I, I want to live more slowly and slow down. I want to rest. I want to work shorter. I want more holidays. But then we started this series called Risk is Right. <laughs> and that sounds like the complete opposite of rest and shorter. Just when you started a new year, I come up with a series that says, just when you thought you were going to rest. Now we're going to go, take a risk, step out in faith, give more, serve more, stand up more. How does that work? What does it mean for us to take risks for the cause of God? What does that mean for our rest? It actually just sounds a bit more chaotic, a bit more hurried. Maybe a bit exciting, but a bit intense. Perhaps you've been thinking week by week, I'm barely getting through my life. <laughs> now you're calling me to do more? I just can't do it. I don't have the margin. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't even have the heart or the motivation. And this whole series sounds like the perfect recipe for a short burst of enthusiasm that flames out. And instead of hashtag risk is right being something that marks us as the people of God in this church, the reality will be risk was right. Uh, we did it for a couple of weeks and then we gave up on it because it's just not sustainable. Can't live on this adrenaline rush of like, all right, what are we going to do next? Who am I going to tell the gospel to? How are we going to live? Ha, ha, ha. We risked, now we rest. But I don't want that to be the case. I don't want that to be the story of our church. And for those of you who are followers of Christ, I don't want us to flame up and then burn out. The Apostle Paul said, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He lived a life of risk without burning out. How? Well, think of the life of Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, which I encourage you to do regularly, can you ever think of a time when Jesus was in a hurry? I'll quote from John Mark Comer's book, and it's quite you know, funny. If there's anything you pick up from reading the four Gospels, it's that Jesus was rarely in a hurry. 
Can you imagine a stressed out Jesus snapping at Mary Magdalene after a long day? Long day? I can't believe you dropped the hummus. <laughs> Sighing and saying to himself, oh, I seriously need a glass of wine. <laughs> Can you picture him talking to you, half texting on his iPhone, the sporadic, uh-huh, punctuating a one-sided conversation? Can you hear him saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'd love to heal your leg, but I have a plane to catch. I'm speaking at TEDx in Jerusalem. <laughs> Here's Thaddeus, an apprentice of mine nobody's ever heard of. He's happy to pray for you. I'm out. Or would you ever hear him say, talk to my assistant Judas. We'll see if we can squeeze you in later. Now, think of Jesus' life. He really didn't live in a hurry. 30 years he spent before he launched his public ministry. Building houses, making tables, carpenter. Backwaters of Galilee, Nazareth. He regularly, in the course of his ministry, took himself aside from the work just to pray. Hours in the desolate places, praying and recharging. In fact, he began his ministry, didn't he, with John the Baptist. He's baptized. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. And what does he do? 40 days in the wilderness. Think about when he hears about that Lazarus is dying. Lazarus is his close friend. He waits three days, lets Lazarus die, and then walks on his way to resurrect him. Or when Jairus falls before Jesus and says, my daughter is dying, please save her. Jesus says, okay, I'll come and heal her. And as he's walking, another lady pulls him aside and he heals her. And in the process, Jairus' daughter dies. He wasn't rushing. He wasn't hurrying. Now, partly because he knew what he was going to do, he goes and raises Jairus' daughter back from the dead, but he didn't live with this frantic, like, oh, I've got to do good, I've got to do the next thing. Okay, okay, Jairus' daughter, okay, healing woman, bleeding woman, okay, Lazarus. He, he didn't live like that. There's even an occasion when Jesus first began his ministry. He, he goes on the Sabbath, and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and he declares that he is the fulfillment of that scroll. And some of them are like, whoa, these are really gracious words. But then the more he teaches, the more they hate him. Eventually, they take him and they drive him to the edge of a cliff. This is in Luke 4. They're about to throw him off a cliff. And the text just says, and Jesus walked right through them. <laughs> Even on the brink of death, he doesn't like run or, you know, parachute off. He, he just <laughs> walks right through them. So if, if Jesus had all these tasks from God to do, the most important task in all of human history, and he wasn't hurried, if the Apostle Paul didn't seem to hurry his way through life and go through seasons of burnout and just have to stop ministry for like three years to recuperate, how did they do it? How do you and I, how do we sustainably and consistently live a life that we're called to live taking the right risks for the cause of Christ, but do it in a way that isn't hurried and anxious and fractious and always on the brink of burnout and fatigue. How is that possible to do that? Is it even possible? Well, I want to say today, it's not just possible, it's expected. And it's not just expected, it is commanded. Rest is, after all, one of the Ten Commandments. Keep the Sabbath day and make it holy. Inscribed in the law is rest. 
though perhaps not as we normally think of it. So what does it look like for you and I to risk and rest? What does it look like for us to go out and do great things and expect great things from God and attempt great things for God, but do it in a way that doesn't lead to destruction and burnout and ruin? Well, we're going to do Bible story time once more. And I want to take us through the whole Bible to get a biblical theology of rest and then apply it to our lives. And to do that, I've got three points for us this morning. And the the titles will make sense the further we get in. Point number one, the shadow of rest. Point number two, the reality of rest. Point number three, the practice of rest. So let's have a look. Point number one, the shadow of rest. We see in our reading from this morning that at the end of the six days of creation, after the Lord had made everything, he'd made man, uh, he'd made man in his own image, male and female, and he gives us this task, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea. So he gives man this task, Adam and Eve hear these words, this is their job, go take dominion, right? That's what all of us are called to do, take dominion, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, Then the next day comes, and what happens? Let's read it again. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. He gives Adam and Eve this incredible task. They they start somewhere, maybe, I don't know, Africa, wherever the Garden of Eden was, and subdue the earth. Day seven, the next day, they wake up, ready to subdue, and God says, no, no, today's a day of rest. He blesses a day and, and sets apart a day and makes a day holy and sanctifies this day and says, rest. And really, Adam and Eve were meant to live and work and dominate the world in that sense out of that position of rest. You notice that the seventh day never ends. There's no evening and morning the seventh day. It's just the seventh day rest. But sadly, Adam and Eve don't live in that rest. They don't enjoy God's presence. They don't enjoy celebrating Him like they were meant to. And instead, as you know, they they eat the fruit. They take the lie of the serpent to become like God. And when they do that, what happens to their work, their cultural mandate, the job that's been given? Well, God curses it. God curses the earth so that when Adam goes to till the ground and dominate the earth, it gives him thorns and thistles and weeds and his work becomes hard. As Eve goes to bear fruit, literally by having children and multiply and fill the earth, her pregnancies become cursed and death enters through pregnancy and pain enters through pregnancy. The rest is disrupted by our sin. You see, we were born into rest humanity. We're meant to worship and and do our work from a position of rest, but then sin, sin disrupts that. And then you fast forward through the Bible storyline, and it's a storyline of men and women working not in the rest, not in that seventh day position. And eventually, after you get through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the promise that they will have a promised land of rest, a beautiful place to go to, we find the Israelites, God's chosen people in Egypt. And what are they doing in Egypt? 
non-stop work. They're slaves. 400 years of brutality, 400 years of 24-7 slavery and menial labor. They're not taking dominion. They're not multiplying and filling the earth. They're not in the promised land. They're slaves. And their Lord is Pharaoh, and he makes them work and work and work and work. No days off, no reprieve, no rest. And so God, what does he do? He liberates his people from Egypt, through Moses, through all the great miracles and Bible stories that you've probably heard of, and he delivers them from their slavery, delivers them from the land of Egypt so that they can rest and worship. The whole point of the Exodus was not just to get them out of Egypt, was to bring them to a place where they could know God again, worship God again, and be free. And so then Moses receives the Ten Commandments from God as a summary of the whole law. Uh, The Ten Commandments summarize the rest of the 613 commands that were there for the people of Israel. The Ten Commandments, it's not like this set of rules, it's more like a, a path to life. It's the people of Israel. They don't know who they are. They don't know who their God is. And so God says, this is the best way to live. And you get to the fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20. And have you ever noticed how strange it is? Look at what they're commanded to do. They're commanded to rest. Remember the Sabbath, that is, remember the seventh day, by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Why? Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And made it holy. After 400 years of slavery, God gives them a gracious law, a law of rest. And not just for the Israelites, but for all in the land, rich and poor. You know, this isn't just for the capitalists, this is for everyone. Everyone gets to rest. The slaves and even the foreigners and even the the animals, the donkeys got a day off. Praise the Lord. I'm sure they were happy. And it's it's strange that they had to be commanded to rest. You'd think that they'd never work again after 400 years of slavery, but instead, the the inbuilt desire we have from Genesis 1 to work can then become this idol for us where we have to work. What if I don't work? What if I don't till the ground? What if I don't do enough? Will I have enough food? Will I be provided for? Will, you know, things go to ruin? Will my family have enough? And so God looks at them and, and says, I want you to stop. Every seven days, like clockwork, and cease from your labor. And give me a day where you enjoy me, where you worship me, where you enjoy the fruit of your hands. You don't just work to live. You don't just, you know, exist, but you reflect. You enjoy. It's not just a day off. It's a, it's a day off to the Lord. And in Deuteronomy, Moses repeats this command to God's people just before they're going to enter the promised land, after the people rejected God's promised land and wandered for 40 years to the next generation. And he says this, the fourth command, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. 
Verse 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out there, out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So there's two reasons that the Israelites were meant to rest. One, to remember and be like God, their creator, who rested on the seventh day. Secondly, to remember the salvation and redemption that they had, that they're no longer in Egypt, that Pharaoh is no longer their Lord, but God is their Savior. And so they take every seven days, breathe in and out and rejoice in creation, rejoice in the benefit of being in the promised land, rejoice in their redemption, that they are no longer slaves. And then added to this, the Sabbath, it was not just one day a week, a year. There was actually seven feasts and festivals. And each one of those feasts had days off as well. Some of them were eight days off. And then every seven years, they were meant to let the land rest and not till it or cultivate it, but just trust that the Lord would provide enough food from the land without harvesting and without doing all the work that they needed to do. And then every seventh seventh year, so every 49 years plus one, there was the year of Jubilee, where they would give back everyone's land, and it would be a complete reset, and all the slaves would be free, and everyone would get back into their promised land and their promised allotment. So these sevens and this rest, they're all in there as a sign to the Israelites that I'm your God, and I'm a good God, and I give you grace, and I've saved you, and I want you to rest and enjoy. There is more to life than you know, the abundance of possessions. There's more to life than what you do and providing for yourself. And to obey the Sabbath, to go back to risk is right, was a risk. They had to risk. They had to trust that God really would provide it. And you see that when they collect manna. And God says, I will give you twice as much on the sixth day. Yet what did they do? They still go out on the seventh day and collect manna. And God's like, no, 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 you don't get it. Trust me, I will provide. The Sabbath was a sign to the people of Israel. It's actually a sign of the covenant. It's part of the old covenant. It doesn't, as we'll see, carry on into the new in the same way. But it was a sign to all the nations that we are different. We don't work seven days a week. We rest. Unfortunately, though, the people of Israel didn't keep the Sabbaths. They fell back into slavery to work, slavery to greed, the fear of not having enough, not wanting to set apart a day to enjoy God and worship. They chose work. And so what does God do? Well, He does what He promised He would do. If you read through Deuteronomy and Leviticus, there's a promise of a curse, that if you do not Sabbath, if you do not rest, if you do not obey... I will give the land a rest by exiling you. And that's exactly what happens. And that's exactly how it's explained in various parts of the Old Testament. It says, you are in exile now, Israel. Why? To give the land a rest because you withheld the land from its Sabbaths. And even it says that Jeremiah prophesied that they would be in exile for 70 years to give the land all the 490 years worth of seven sevens that they didn't give it, right? So it's, it's all interconnected. It's quite amazing how it all works. But to put this Old Testament story together, sin leads to slavery. It leads to toil. It leads to corruption. It leads to curse. Worship leads to rest. So that's the shadow. And I'll explain why I use that word in a moment. Point number two the reality of rest. The story continues. 
Jesus arrives on the scene. He's born and he begins his public ministry in the book of Luke. And guess what day he begins it on? The Sabbath, right? And the first thing he reads is from Isaiah 66, which was a passage about the Jubilee, the Sabbath of Sabbaths. And he says, the Sabbath of Sabbaths is fulfilled in me. And then they go and try and chuck him off a cliff. Not so restful. And if you think through the story of Jesus, every time you hear that something, that like it's a Sabbath day, what happens? You know what's about to happen, right? A fight is going to break out. Uh, and that's exactly what happens every time on the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't break the Sabbath, but he challenges their interpretation of it. Because they're taking the Sabbath, a day that was made for man, a day that was made for rest and worship, and turned it into work with all these rules and regulations, what you can and can't do, judging people, stopping people, rebuking people, rather than enjoying the Lord. And then Jesus says this very curious and famous phrase, you might have heard it before, we've preached on it here, Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That's an agricultural tool that you bind oxen together to work harder. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And by doing this, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of the Pharisees was heavy and toilsome. It led to destruction. And Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. True rest. Not just rest from work, but rest of the soul. Then, immediately following that in Matthew chapter 12, there's two Sabbath controversy stories where Jesus ends up saying to the Pharisees, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I determine what is right and wrong about the Sabbath. I fulfill what the whole Sabbath is pointing to because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Fast forward, come to the cross. Jesus is betrayed on the eve of Passover, which was a Sabbath day of rest, the Passover. He's crucified. He dies on the cross for our sins, the the Passover lamb, the lamb of God. His blood is poured out. His body is broken. And at what time does that begin? When is he peeled off the cross and buried in a grave? On the Sabbath. So Jesus completes his life of work. He completes his work of redemption on the cross. And then in the grave, he rests on the seventh on the Sabbath. His rest was not a day of just like chillaxing and, you know, by the pool and pancakes and family time. The way Jesus ultimately fulfilled the Sabbath was by descending into death, taking our death upon ourselves and resting in a grave. And then all four Gospels tell us this detail. Now, after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Each four of the Gospels specifically say that the day after the Sabbath, what happens? Jesus 
rises from the dead. It's very specific and very clear. And even in the original Greek, it actually says Sabbath and one. It's making a point about the Sabbath, Jesus rested. Now, the first day of the week, he's alive. A new creation has begun. A new work has begun. The, The world is being born again in Christ. Six days Jesus worked, completed his work of salvation, cried out, it is finished on the cross, rested in the grave, and then rose again on the eighth day, the start of a new week. And so in a sense, the world starts again. New creation begins, and it begins with Jesus. Author Scott Hubbard and pastor says this, when the stone rolled away from Jesus' tomb on Easter morning, true Sabbath rest arrived. And a new day dawned. And we see that the Sabbath command is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, in Christ, we don't primarily obey the Sabbath by resting every seven days. We Sabbath now by resting in Jesus. The way that we obey the Sabbath is not by taking every seventh day off necessarily, but by stopping from trying to save ourselves and earn a place in heaven or make our identity in what we do or our approval or earn our comfort. We rest now by resting in Jesus, who fulfilled the law for us. Look at how Paul speaks of it in Colossians 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So all the commands about the Sabbath, the feasts, the festivals, the jubilee, everything was a shadow of true rest. Now the reality has come, the substance is here, and the true rest that we get is even better than a day off. It's Jesus. We obey the, seventh, uh, the fourth command by resting in Christ. Because true rest is found in Christ. We rest from our labor, from our trying to save ourselves by coming to Christ. We fulfill what Jesus said when he said, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I <clears throat> will give you rest. Come to me, he says. Come to me, not to a day not to a place, not to a practice, but to a person. True rest is not found in a great vacation, holiday, a weekly day off, even in our quiet times, or even in our church services necessarily. First and foremost, true rest is found in Jesus. He is our rest. A day of rest is good, It might be wise and beneficial, but a lifestyle of rest in Jesus Christ is the even better Sabbath. And it feels like, as I was studying this, it felt like a bit of a rip-off. I sort of wanted the law to stand. I wanted the answer to be, no, 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 Riley, 6 p.m. on a Saturday night, it's the Christian Sabbath, stop working, you're not allowed to work, 24 hours, you get off. And I felt a bit ripped off that that's no longer the command and, and now I have to make this choice about what I do. And the reason I felt ripped off is I didn't think Jesus being my rest was better than a day off. I wanted the law for a day off. 
But the reality, the better rest for you and I is Jesus Christ. And if he isn't, if that isn't good news, then like me, there's something wrong in your soul. Like, like me, there's, there's some problem. You think the solution to the anxiety, <clears throat> the franticness and the hurry in your life is going to be found in some practice? It's found in a person. So you bring your baggage and your failure. You bring all these pent up and all these lost and forsaken hopes. You bring them to Jesus and you find rest for your souls. You bring your hopes and your dreams, your desires, and you say, your will be done, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come. I rest in you. You do what you want. Sabbath rest involves letting him lead you and send you wherever he wills you to go. Sabbath rest in Jesus involves trusting in him for the provision and supplies for the journey. So, putting it all together, how do we sustainably and consistently live a life of taking risks for the cause of Christ in a way that isn't hurried, anxious, fractious, always on the brink of burnout and fatigue? Well, we don't risk and then rest. We risk out of our rest. We take risks for the cause of Christ out of the rest that we have in Christ. We risk out of resting in Him. So point one, the shadow of rest, Old Testament covenant. Point two, the reality of rest, fulfilled in Christ. The old covenant is gone. The new covenant has begun. The Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus. We risk out of resting in Christ. Point three, the practice of of rest. Now, it sounds very spiritual, right? So we risk out of our rest. What does that actually mean? Uh, because I did not experience that in the process of writing this sermon. Uh, I, did, I wrestled, to be honest. I wrestled this morning. I'm wrestling always to actually live in the reality. But this is what the text means. It means we do take all of our life and all of our work and all of our parenting and marriage and singleness and everything, all of our money, and we live out of the rest that we have in Christ. So how do we do that? Well, one practice, one wise practice, one practice that has begun since that very first day when Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and it was empty, is weekly worship. Practically, the church for two millennia has gathered on Resurrection Sundays every week, 52 weeks a year, for 2,000 years to celebrate the rest that we have in Jesus. You'll actually find, if you read through the New Testament with keen eyes, as I saw this week, that often when Jesus appears to the disciples, he appears to them on the Resurrection Day, on the eighth day, and it says it in the text. If you look through various parts of Acts and 1 Corinthians, there's a sense that the, the New Testament church really did gather on the first day of the week. They no longer Sabbathed. They no longer took a day of rest, but they changed it to a day of worship. When Jesus appears uh, to John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, John says, I was, in the, I was uh, on the Lord's day, I saw a vision. It's the only time in the Bible, but the, the eighth day, the, the new Sabbath, so to speak, is called the Lord's Day because it's the day the Lord rose from the dead. And so the whole week has now changed for the church because the new creation has begun, the new act of redemption, the new slavery moment has been redeemed. They worshipped on the seventh day because God 
brought them out of Israel. We worship on the first day because we were brought out of our sin and slavery to Satan. And so for two millennia, though not required by law, though it's not a 100% like in the Bible, you have to do it, the church has gathered to remind ourselves of Christ and the gospel. Read Hebrews 10 with me, verse 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And how do we hold fast? How do we make it to the end? How do we risk and rest? Well, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How do we do that? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The weekly gathering of God's people is one of the greatest means of grace we have to remind our souls to rest in Christ, to gather and, and sing songs like we sang this morning, to, to be reminded of the gospel. You know, as I was sharing in Starting Point, we went through the gospel and I just felt this weight come off me. <laughs> My sins are forgiven. When I go back to lunch and hang out with you and we have great conversation and we share in the fellowship we have in Christ, all these things are designed to help our souls rest again in Christ. You try going, not going to church for a year and you tell me you're a better person. You're a better Christian. You're more holy. You're more loving. You're more rested. It's the best day of the week. And I would, it's not law, but I would say that there is wisdom in the principle of the Sabbath. It began at creation. It was continued in Israel. And though we don't have to do it, I think it's wisdom to do it. Ephesians 5, 15 to 16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And so I would commend you as a, a practice of wisdom, given that our days are evil, our days are long, our days are chaotic, our life is hurried and fractious and you know, frantic, as a point of wisdom, let me commend to you setting apart 24 hours where you put down the tools, you turn off the Wi-Fi, you stop working, you stop producing, you stop grinding, you stop going, you stop achieving, you stop studying, you stop getting better marks, you stop trying to make your life go forward and you take a risk by resting. You take a risk by letting your soul breathe enough that you can actually hear the gospel and believe it and sing it because you prepared for it because you didn't run in at 10.30. You were here at 9.30 because you weren't working or doing something else. You're here and you're ready. And what an effect that will have. What an effect that does have on me. Scott Hubbard again says this in his great article from Desiring God. Every Lord's Day, we come again to Jesus, weary, heavy laden. We trace the shadow of the Sabbath to its substance. We hear again in the distance the sounds of the future Sabbath festival. We glimpse again by faith the glow of innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's, that's the hope of heaven, the, the true Sabbath. We look again into the empty tomb and hear Christ say, peace to you. In other words, we find rest. 
the kind of rest that remains long after Sunday has passed. Without regularly experiencing this kind of rest and with special power every Lord's Day, it matters little how much rest we give our bodies. Our rest will be restless and our work will become a desperate attempt to secure for ourselves the rest that we have not found in Christ. Neither the sluggard who works for the weekend nor the workaholic who has no weekend has yet to learn to enjoy the rest of the true Sabbath. Not so with those who have heeded, have heard and heeded Jesus' invitation to take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. The world and the devil would have us work even while we rest. But Jesus would have us rest even while we work. And here, in this Christ-saturated resting and working, we live out the Sabbath today. So we Sabbath every day when we rest in Christ. We Sabbath as we teach and as we um, nurse and, and police and, and look after children. We Sabbath as we create spreadsheets. If we do it, knowing that Christ is our true rest, knowing of the hope that we have, and then we gather on the Lord's Day and we're reminded again and we're filled again and we're refreshed again to go out of that rest and take risks for Christ. I commend to you to read John 15 this week, where Jesus so clearly tells us that the way that we produce fruit is not by frantic activity, but by abiding in Him. The only way we as a church will produce fruit that lasts is if we rest in Christ, because apart from Him, we can do nothing. So if we want to be a church, if we want to be people that fulfill the Great Commission, that take risks, that, that see great things happen, if you want to live a life that counts, that endures for eternity, that has fruit, that will last, do it out of the rest that you have in Christ. Not having to do it to earn a place, not having to do it to feel secure, not having to do it to win approval, but getting to do it. Getting to do it out of what you have in and know this, that our hope is future rest. Our rest is not ultimately here. It's not ultimately in a day. It's in Christ. The same author says again, the ultimate Sabbath rest is coming when God's people will enjoy work without toil, hearts without sin, and an earth without thorns. We experience a taste of that when we sing. We experience a taste of that when we live in the goodness of the Father. We experience a taste of that in Christ every day. But one day we will enter the seventh day, the true seventh day, the eternal seventh day. No thorns, no thistles, no sin, no curse, no toil, only rest, only worship, and only joy, and all in Christ. And Jesus invites you into that now. If you're working for your salvation, give up. Go to Christ, rest in Him. If you're working out of your salvation to try and make God pleased with you or earn your place in this church or you know, really be a truly good Christian, give up and rest again in Christ and then let Him lead you into what He wants you to do out of a position of soul rest rather than toil. Friends, risk is right. We ought to take risks for the cause of Christ. But the only way we will do it consistently 
over a long period of time and faithfully is if we do our risks out of our position of rest in Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how can we thank you enough for your Son, our Saviour, that we have true rest in Him. We thank you that we get to obey the fourth command this morning by resting in your Son. We give up on ourselves, O oh Lord. We lay down our selfish pride, our attempts at achievement. We lay down our attempts at religion to prove ourselves to you or to please you. And we come to your son, Jesus, our Savior, and we rest in him. We take upon his yoke. And Lord, we ask that you would give rest to our souls. Would you help us to breathe? Would you help us to have lightness, to have the shackles removed because we are in your son and abiding in him and the fruit comes out of that. Protect us, O oh Lord, from the frantic, chaotic, anxious ways that we so easily return to and help us to find rest in your son and abide in him. In Jesus' name, amen.